I, I, I want to talk to you um, from the subject of the pain problem. Seeing the hand of God in the glove of pain. The pain problem. Seeing the hand of God in the glove of pain. I give myself a solid, nice, solid C minus. Nice, solid C minus. You see, over the last 18 months, the word that could define our culture or society is pain. Uh, pain that you face yourself or pain that you help someone else face. And if I were to be honest with myself about the way I've handled pain over the last 18 months, I, it would be a C minus. And here's, here's the reason why, is that um, I have either gotten locked up, frozen in my pain, where I, I, I say the right things, but it, it doesn't, ref, like, it's not coming out of a response in my soul that believes what I'm saying. I'm stuck. Stuck in my soul when it comes to pain. Or I, I blame God, if I'm honest where I, I point a bony finger at him and go, where were you? Or I, I, to be honest with you, when it comes to certain parts I remember of the last 18 months, I isolate in the midst of pain. I just do it alone. I, I, I love the, 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 the great Soren Kierkegaard, he's a philosopher, what he says about pain is that Life is easiest lived backwards, but we have to live it forwards. What, what, what he's saying is that like, we, you can look back at the last 18 months and go, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Like God did this, and he did this, and he brought this together, and this worked out. and it, I see it, but we have to live it in the fog of the present. And if, I, if the last 18 months have taught me anything at all, it is I need to prepare for the next 18 months because pain is going to come. It's going to come soon. What, what does it look like for, for me, for Corey Bendix, to face the test of pain in the future? And I have to, I realize I need a tutor. I'm, if, if I'm going to go through this class again, I want to learn. And I want to, I, I really feel like God wants to shape me in this moment in order for me to be prepared to navigate pain, seeing God's hand in it. And there's no person in the scriptures that I think teaches us how to navigate pain and see God's hand in it than the story of Naomi in Ruth chapter 1. And so what I would love to do is I'm just going to, if you haven't read your Bible this morning, don't worry, we're going to read it right now. Um, and so I, I want, in order for us to understand the narrative, I want to read the narrative. So I'm just going to start reading. It's in Ruth chapter 1. We're going to um, start in verse 1. And... Um, what, what I'd, I'd like to do is just read the verse before, which is Judges, chapter 21, verse 25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Ruth, chapter 1. Now, it came to pass in, those, in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land. And a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to dwell in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the, one of, of the man was Elimelech. The name of his wife was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. Epaphrathites of Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to the country of Moab and remained there. The, then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. And she was left and her two sons. Now they took wives of the women 
of Moab. The names of one was Orpah and the name of the other Ruth. And they dwelt there about 10 years. Then both Malon and Chilion also died. So the woman survived her two sons and her husband. And she rose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the country of Moab that the Lord had visited his people by giving them bread. Therefore, she went out from the place where she was and her two daughters-in-law with her, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. And Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each to her mother's house. The Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest each in the house of her husband. So she kissed them and they left up their, they, they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, surely we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, turn back, my daughters, why will you go with me? Are there still sons in my womb that they may be your husband? Turn back, my daughters. Go, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, if I should uh, have a husband tonight and should also bear sons, would you wait for them till they were grown? Would you restrain yourselves from having husbands? No, my daughters, for it grieves me very much for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, look, your sister's-in-law gone Uh, has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, entreat me not to leave you or turn back from following after you. For wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. There There will I be buried. The Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts you and me. When she saw that she was determined to go with her, she stopped speaking to her. Wow. Now the two of them went until they came to Bethlehem. And it happened when they had come to Bethlehem that all the city was excited because of them. And the the women said, is this Naomi? But she said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call, Call me Mara. For Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, and the Lord has brought me home again empty. Why do you call me Naomi, since the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has afflicted me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, with her. She returned from the country of Moab. Now they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Lord, bless your word. We love you. Amen. There was a wise man in a village who was impossible to stump. There was a young man who made it his his aim. The reason that he existed in his own eyes was to try to figure out a way to stump the old man. And so he came up with with a strategy. It was a perfect strategy. He was planning on getting a bird, putting it in his hands, and going up to the wise old sage and saying, is the bird alive or dead? And if the old sage would say, well, the bird is dead, he would release it and it would be alive. And if the, if the old sage said, well, it's, it's, it's alive, he would crush it and say it was, it was dead. It was, it was flawless. It was perfect. No holes. It goes up to the sage 
and does the plan. I mean, he just executes it perfectly. And the wise old man paused, looked at the man, looked at his hands, and says, neither. The bird is in your hands. So it is with pain. Pain is in our hands with the question, what will we do with it? But what we do with our pain will be determined by how we see God in it. Your view of your God will determine how you see and respond to your pain. If we see our pain as that which is a gift of grace, a God who is with us, who's not punishing us. Now, does he divinely will things or allow things? Absolutely. But he promises never to waste pain. That, that if we see our pain as that which God is immersed into it, that he is, that he is now he's entering into our story and he has promised to use our pain for our good and for his glory. If we see our pain like that, then we'll be able to steward. But if we have a view of God that he's disconnected, he hates me, he's not engaged, then we'll disregard it, we'll discount it, and we'll dismiss it. This is what C.S. Lewis writes in his book, The Problem of Pain. He says this, God whispers to us in our pleasures speaks in our consciences, but shouts in our pains. It is the megaphone to rouse a deaf world. God whispers to us in our pleasure, speaks in our consciences, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. You see, the, the storyline of the scriptures really express this pretty beautifully in that what we find is we have a God who, if you were to ask me, Corey, what is the storyline of the Bible? Describe it in less than 10 words. I would probably describe it as God with us, even in our mess. God with us, even in our mess. You see, this is, this is the totality of the scriptures. And you see it from the very beginning all the way to the end is God constantly reminding his creation, he's with us. That he's with us even when we self-destruct, he's still with us. Even when we're obedient, he's with us. Even when we rebel, he's with us. This is a God who is committed to now boomerang us back to himself. This is, now, just because this is our design doesn't mean we actually, like, do this or see God through this context or filter. You see God in the garden. Man turns their, their, his back on God. God is with them. God delivers his people out of exile. The tabernacle, this creation, this tent where God rests because he wants his people to set up their lives around the tent. He's, this is a God who, who loves proximity. He's, we are made for himself. You've got Jesus, his name, Emmanuel, God with us. The Holy Spirit, God with us. I mean, this, even, even the idea of God returning to his creation, this is the storyline of the Bible. That now, The reason I'm saying this is because we have to understand and be reevaluated, restructured in the way that we see our God. That he is a God who's with us. This is not a karma God. Do good, get good. Do bad, you're, you're kicked to the street. This is not the Bible. This is not the, this is not the structure of the Bible. And, and what I love about the story in Ruth 1 is that 
is that this really unpacks God's commitment to his people because what we see in Naomi, we see a woman who's going through immense pain and her response is our response. And even in her lack of response, what we're going to find is God enters into her story anyway. The reason I read the book of Judges is because what we see in, in Judges is that God is, is, he cares about the nation of Israel as a whole. And he's committed to this nation who isn't committed to God. And then we go from the nation to a family, a specific family, a couple of people. And we, we're introduced to Naomi. And right off the bat, the narrator is letting us know how rattled she is by pain. In the first six verses, we're given a whole lot. We find that she's from Bethlehem. Bethlehem, that word means the house of bread, which is ironic that there's a famine in the house of bread. And in the midst of the famine, um, you have the result of a famine is starvation. So you have a woman in Naomi watching her kids go hungry. Her kids, her name, there's Malon and Chilion. Um, in that day and age, you would name a child based off of a, a purpose, a reason. Something of, of a, a, a def- it was a defining expression to point to others what is happening in that child's life or what, uh, what their journey will be. Malon's name is sickly. Chilion's name is wavering near death. This is a mom. Just, just pause. Just think about this. A mother who is watching her two sons starve. And these two sons are rattled with pain themselves. And as a, have you ever been there? Watching your children navigate things that are outside of their control. And she's married to a man named Elimelech, which means God is my king. And God is my king, Elimelech, decides he wants to move to Moab, which Mo is who is Ab, my father. So God is my king, takes his family to a place of who is my father. And what's ironic is that Moab is literally 40 miles away, but it's 40 miles away downhill. What, what we're told is that in the midst of the pressure that Elimelech faces, he takes the easy way out. Takes his family, rips them out of the comfort and the connection of family within Bethlehem, and they go to Moab. If you don't know anything about Moab, um, you have to go to Genesis 19. Story of Lot, who has an incestuous relationship with his daughter. And they name him Moab who is my father. The Moabites are, they, they don't like people of Israel. It's not a good relationship. They need some time on Dr. Phil's couch. I mean, it's bad. Um, and what you have in Numbers 22, 23, 24, 25 are all of these ways that the Moabites works above and beyond to keep Israel out of their promised land. They block them where they send their women to go sleep with their men to get them to be devoted to other gods. And in fact, what we find in Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 3, 
This is what it says. No Moabite in 10 generations will be admitted to the assembly of the Lord. And here, Elimelech takes his family to Moab. A woman who has no choice in the matter. Just allow for the pain to wash over you that you see in in the text. But it gets worse. Her husband dies. Her sons die. And we're told that she is an Epaphrathite. This is pretty technical, but to be from Bethlehem is her nationality. To be an Epaphrathite is her class. Right? And so her class is, it, it really is, at the, if, you, if you study it, um, she is an aristocrat. Which means that her last name might as well be Kennedy, Vanderbilt, Kardashian. Sorry. That was inappropriate. But what, what, what the narrator is doing is he's cluing us in. He's cluing us in to how pain is universal. It'll get you. It is not a respecter of persons. Whether you are a Kennedy or whether you are just trying to survive. That this is the reality of all of our stories is that pain will knock on the door. It's only a matter of time. And what Naomi does is she gives us a perspective a unique perspective about how she processes this pain. And, and, and I want you to, as you were reading this, you've got to see yourself in the story. I know I do. First perspective, it's a perspective towards God. You see, in verse 13, it says this, the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. She goes on in verse 21, the Lord has testified against me. Like in her mind, I mean, here's a woman who, who has concluded that God is now building a case. This is a law court language. Building a case against Naomi. That God is against me. And in her, her perspective, the way that she's interpreting this is that God has left me because of something that I've done. I'm being punished. This is about me. Right? I mean, if, if you think about even the way by which us as a society how we approach God, it's very much this unique, um, almost like therapist type of approach with God, where God exists to make me comfortable. That, that he's, a, he's, you know, he's, he's that which you go to like a slot machine. You put coins in and you get whatever you want out and then you leave. Like God's existence is for my comfort. He exists to make me happy. He exists to give me what I feel like I need or want. That when this God doesn't do that, it's because I have done something wrong. Or the implications is God doesn't exist, period. It is this classic, uh, like, like how can a loving God allow for pain in the world? This is basically what she's saying. She's accusing God of not existing because of the pain that she's navigating. Now, I'm not... I'm not accusing, I'm, I'm not accusing her because I've been her. Most of my life, I've stuttered, stammered, bad. Certain seasons are worse than others. And for, I'm 42, almost, gosh, I'm old, almost 43, for probably 37 of those years, I've had to wrestle with this idea of a perspective towards God, of God is punishing me. Now, I don't mean to, but it's intrinsic. Something, it's almost like this natural bent of assuming 
that God is against me. I just love that even in spite of a God, in her perspective, that God is a, God's against me, that even in spite of that, you see God's hand of mercy working, and you don't see it now. Now, you see, you see the picture of it, the foreshadowing of it, because at the end of the chapter, it says, and they came in at barley harvest. That's a foreshadowing of what's to come. But even in spite of, of this woman, Naomi's perspective of God, of you've left me, guess what? God refuses to leave Naomi. And, and can, I, can I just say this for free? Um, some of, of, like most of us, when we think about pain, we're just, we think that God's plan is just to get us out as fast as possible. But a lot of times, guess what he does? He allows us to stay in it because he's wanting to work himself into us. And I know we hate that, and we accuse God of, 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 of having less than, than solid character because he, like, how, God, how could you do that as a father? How, how, how could you, you say that you love me, how could you allow this to happen to me? And yet, in, it, what you see in the backgrounds is the tender, loving hands of a father working around Naomi, planning and preparing something she cannot see. You see her, her perspective towards God, but then at the same time, you see her perspective towards herself. Check, this is, fa- this is f- fascinating to me, where she says this, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara. This is in verse 20. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. She literally goes from being pleasant, that's what her name means, beautiful, from beautiful to bitter. She had so identified with her pain that her pain became her identity. And what's even more fascinating is that when she comes back to Bethlehem, do you remember what the people asked her, the, the women of the, of, of the city? They said, who is this? Is this Naomi? Do you realize that pain deformed her? Her pain made her unrecognizable. Have you ever been there? Where we so identify with pain, it becomes who we are. We shut down. It begins to form how we walk, forms how we talk, forms who we see in the mirror. What's, what's fascinating, though, is that, is that she names herself Mara, and it's, in, it's, it's actual like she's quoting the Bible, which is really amazing. It's in Exodus chapter 15, verse 23, when the people of Israel, they come out of Egypt, they cross over the Red Sea. It's kind of a big deal, right? They come out of that, a couple days go by, and they have bitter water. And they call it Mara. And they're really angry with Moses of how can your God allow us to have bitter water? He needs to do something about this. Oh, by the way, we just came out of the Red Sea. We just came out of Egypt. And, and all of the people who were enslaving us, yeah, they're not enslaving us anymore. We're free, but we need real water. And the very next verse in verse 24, it says that God steps in and makes the bitter water clean and sweet. Not just clean, but sweet. That in, even in spite of the accusations and the horrific attitude of the people of Israel, God dismisses, like he overlooks that and he still gives them what they don't deserve. But what 
Naomi doesn't remember verse 24. She only remembers verse 23. She calls herself Mara. Have you ever done that where you where you're in the midst of a season where it's defining you and you remember certain parts of the Bible that are really not complete? Have you ever been there? This is the story of Mara. But what, again, what, what I, I love about how, as, as you think even about 2020, we have been in a season where people have been defined, have been, have identified, have been identified by pain. But now the pain has gone to a point where it's gone past just identifying with it, but they've been, uh, they, like their identity is that. Like we, we're, we're, we're in the season where, where even health, jobs, Politically, even racially, there's just so much pain that's been involved. People are now going from just identifying with it to now their identity being formed by it. And now they're wondering, how do I get out of this? But just as bitterness can deform, seeing the hand of God in our pain can transform. Can transform. I mean, if you look at the story of Joseph... I mean, we know the story of he, he is, I mean, like you got Floyd Mayweather and then you've got Joseph and I'm not sure who's cockier, right? Who talks more smack, who's, who thinks better about themselves. I think it may be Joseph. I think he is, he's more full of himself than Floyd Mayweather. I mean, he is, he loves himself. He is confident about himself. And yet you see this man who goes through pain in the prison, in the pit, now has been brought out into the palace and what is his conclusion about those who had put him there his brothers he says I, I forgive you I see I see God in this well what was that it was God using pain to transform Joseph that, that pain doesn't have to deform us it can actually transform us and then and then you have her perspective towards towards others I went away full this is in verse 21, I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Naomi and Ruth, her daughters-in-law with her. Like, do you realize like, that even when she comes back to Israel, she says to her people, I have come here empty. And yet she, what she's doing, she's overlooking the very salvation that God will give her, which is the woman she's with. It's Ruth. But because of her pain, she dismisses and discounts the very people God has put into her life. I mean, if we are really honest, when we, when we consider pain and its work in our own life, as results to people, we either isolate or overlook. We do it alone or we discount the very gifts of God's grace that he has put into our life, namely people. So what is God's purpose? I'm going to fly through this, I promise. What is God's purpose in our pain? We find, one, that pain is God's moving agent. Pain is God's moving agent. This is what, what she says in verse 7. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. That God is harnessing every pain and tragedy to move Naomi to to Bethlehem, the house of bread. She wants to get her back to the house of bread, the very place where she will find life, she will find success, but she will find um, transformation with her own soul. God is using pain 
as a moving agent to get her back. Have you ever been there? Of, of God, like you're beginning to see how God is now, he's, he's allowed pain because he wants to move my attitude. He wants to move the way I see myself or others. He wants to move me physically from one place to another. I mean, isn't that the whole point of Romans chapter 2, where it says the kindness of God leads us to repentance? Isn't that the purpose? That God allows for pain to mark us because he wants to move us. But not only that, though, I really believe that the, 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 one of the primary purposes of pain is you show me your pain, I'll show you the purpose why you're on the earth. You show me your pain. And I will show you why you're on this earth to, to begin with. I had an amazing conversation with Demetrius Doss a few days ago. A gentleman who was a part of the attack that occurred here on site a year ago. He was one of the, the, the men who was stabbed. He was one of the men who almost lost his leg. He was one of the men that almost lost his life. And he told me, he said, Corey, I have come alive as a result of the pain that I faced a year ago. Like, I, I'm, 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 I'm alive. Like, I'm seeing life different. I am approaching, like, opportunities completely different. Even God, the way that he's moving me into places I've never been before. He said, Corey, I'm getting an opportunity to go back to Marshall, the school I play football at, to talk to my football team about what God brought me through. And little do they know that like, this is going to be an opportunity where I'm going to talk about the beauty of Jesus and what he's done in my life and ultimately through it. Like for him, this pain was a moving agent to get him to where he was designed to be to begin with. Like what is the pain in your life that you are resisting? I, every morning my, my wife, she comes down and she opens up the curtain for us to see our just we've got a cool little landscape, but she just, but we want to enjoy the outside. But the only way to enjoy it is to open up the curtain where you see through the window pane to enjoy what's outside. That, that pain is a window that people see God through. But the question is the curtains, are they open or closed? Are you willing to open up the curtains of your pain of this last year and everything that comes with that? For people to see God through. People are God's agent of life and pain. This is what it says in chapter 4. So we fast forward a little bit to the end of the story. And this is now as a result, a lot of things happen. Boaz comes into the story. Boaz, they, she ends up, he ends up marrying Ruth because he's a kinsman redeemer. And now, and now there's a baby on the way. And this is what... Is said about Ruth that, that the women around Ruth say, I'm sorry, the women around Naomi say about Ruth. He shall, he shall be to you, the, the child, a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is worth more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. What I love about the power of God's hand on Ruth is that she was willing to lose her rights so Naomi could gain hers. See, Ruth is a defining um, storyline in this book. I mean, it's named, the book is named after her, but it's really about 
Naomi being restored by Ruth. And we, we, we don't really get the full context here, but Ruth was ignored. Ruth was overlooked. Ruth was dismissed. Ruth loved. Ruth was committed. Ruth was relentless. Ruth didn't get the credit that she deserved, but she continued to love Naomi in spite of it. You see, one of the ways that God, his hand is formed and it begins to come into the glove of our pain is as we see the people around us freshly. And for some of you, you're not Naomi, you're, you're Ruth. Like for, for most of us, you, you are a Ruth that God has put you into someone else's life who is navigating pain. And now it's your role to pick up this mantle, this opportunity to express and embody the love of Jesus in ways that will allow for the person that's in pain to come out of pain, seeing the hand of God in the glove of that pain. But, but he's put you there to begin with. Reminds me of... I, I've been in the process of going through John Meacham's book. His truth is marching on. It's a biography of John Lewis. And it's enthralling. And in 1961, John Lewis was in Rock Hill, South Carolina. And what he was, he was a freedom writer. He was 21 years of age. And he was working to desegregate a bus terminal. And he came out, stepped out into Rock Hill, South Carolina, and was met by Elwin Elwin Wilson and within a few moments Mr. Wilson um, began pummeling John Lewis Um, beat him to a point where his face was bloodied and John Lewis remembered thinking to himself about this attack of I can't hit him back I can't hate him I've got to love him to, to give to give him his humanity back. Well, years would go by, 40 years. Mr. Wilson would come to faith in Jesus and would go back. He would be haunted, haunted by this moment with John Lewis, haunted. We'd wake him up in the morning and he encountered the forgiveness of Jesus and remembered that this man had loved me in spite of myself. And he went back to John Lewis and asked John Lewis to forgive him and, and he did. And in 2009, they began traveling. This is a picture. I believe I've got a picture in the back of a moment where John Lewis and Elwin Wilson in front of crowds reconciled that Elwin Wilson was able to encounter the love of Jesus through the relentless love of this man. When I think about maybe your life, maybe this is the, the, the opportunity that you have to love someone else in the pain that they're facing. That, that may cost you in the present, but it will give supernatural results in the future. And finally, God's kindness brings a child from her pain. Brings a child from her pain. What we find at the, at the end of, I'm not going to read it, I was, but I'm, I'm being too wordy. Um, the, read Ruth chapter 4, verses 13 to 17, and I'll, I'll just read this last verse. And the woman of the neighborhood gave, her, gave him a name, saying, a son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Her greatest pain became her greatest gift. Her greatest pain 
became her greatest gift. Um, my, my family, a few of our kids, they love mayonnaise. And mayonnaise, if you, if you think about it, um, it's a pretty fascinating thing in that it's, it's uh, a concoction of bringing two things that are opposites, brought them together, oil and water. But it's got a, an, a mousifier called egg. It takes water and takes the oil and brings it and creates something as a result. And I wonder, as we look at this idea of God's pain, or just the pain that we face, and this idea that God has a purpose in it, that he wants to create a gift through your pain so others might see it. And what holds it together? What brings it together? It's the love of Jesus. It's the beauty of the cross. There's one man who has died, entering into our pain, so that we could have life. And the next steps, like you may be asking, well, Corey, what, what do we do with this? I think it's the one word that's repeated in chapter one, nine times is the word return. You see that word return, it's a word repentance. Re is new and pent is view. How do we see God's hand in our pain? On a daily basis, we wake up and we ask God to allow us to see his hand freshly and give us the courage to return. Return to the house of bread. Return to the place that we're, that we're made for. The bread of life. The one who now through his own life and him facing our pain now gives us access to a God who will never leave us in our pain. Church, wherever you're at, if you're a Naomi, and you're navigating pain that is unspeakable, where you're Ruth, where you have people in your life, that you, it's your, it's your privilege, it's your God-given opportunity to embody and express and point to the love of Jesus through the way that you love that person. I want us to be a person, a church, that handles our pain properly. Let's pray. Father, we love you, we thank you for who you are, for what you're doing. Lord, I thank you for the way by which you are even speaking to our hearts, moving us towards yourself with this act of repentance, of just turning, surrendering. For some of us, though, this is a moment to surrender to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. You may be here and, and he, hearing this message and going, man, I, I'm a Limelech. I I left. I went and tried to figure out myself, but I am be my eyes are beginning to be open to the fact that I need to surrender to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, like for the first time. If that's you, I want to give you an opportunity to, to simply say yes to Jesus, the one who's been saying yes to you. And the way that you do that is you just simply repent and turn back to him. If that's you and you want to, to begin a relationship with Jesus Christ, you want to return. I want you to just simply raise your hand. If you're online, you're hearing this message, and this is your moment. Stop and turn. I want you to just raise your hand. Just click, click the raise your hand button, and we will, if you could, follow the, the prompts all the way through, and we want to respond and circle back with you.
one of the ways you can do that is just simply text 82155. Text the word new life to 82155. Lord, we love you. We thank you for who you are, for what you're doing. We thank you for the, the way by which you have, you have created a people in Washington, D.C. who can navigate pain together and that we have hope in the midst of our pain. We, Lord, we love you. We honor you. In your name we pray. Amen.